Thanks for tuning in to the Journey Through Life podcast. My family and I returned recently in the last couple of days from a long family vacation, and that is the reason why regular episodes have not been released over the last couple of weeks. I'm really grateful to be home and really happy to be back at releasing these conversations that I've had with great people, ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Now, before we get started on this conversation with Kelly Erian Smith, there are a couple of things that I just want to get out there. First is that I still have several of these conversations in the can, and as they used to say in the recording world, that I will be editing and releasing over the next several weeks. I also have several conversations scheduled to be had over the next several weeks, and I'm really excited about those. But I'm also continually looking for new and um, unique people who have a great story to tell. If you are one of those people, or if you know one of those people who has a legacy that they would like to share or an extraordinary story that they have, I would love to hear from you and be able to set up a time to have this conversation. You can email me at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to jtlpod.com and go to the Contact Us tab there and send me a message and we can get that started. As always, I'm really grateful for our partner, alifeuntold.com. As mentioned previously, my mom is going through the process of writing her story, and I'm going to let her tell you her experience with that in a short conversation with me right here. The volume is a little low, but it's a good conversation. So, Mom, how is how are you enjoying this A Life Untold process? Well, it has started me doing something that I have wanted to do for years and years and years. Probably for the last at least five years, I have said for Christmas, I'm going to have my life story written up so that I can give it to my kids for Christmas. Mm. So that's been five years, and um, nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> I would maybe write one story, and then that would be it, and then I'd forget it for another year or two, and then I'd say, for Christmas, I'm going to finish my life story. And then when Justin gave me this opportunity, it... It was. It is so fun. It is so fun. I'm not done with it yet, but I'm getting pretty close, better than I've ever been. And um, what it's done, as as I have answered the questions, because there's kind of questions there that you just answer, and once you start answering the questions, a lot of things just start coming back. And uh, you hit this little button that says save, and then continue, and then you go to the next one. But you can always go back because I found as I've answered some of the questions down the road that it brings up something that I went, oh, gosh, I got to want to put that in there. And so I go back and to that question area and I can put it in. So it's not like once you've left the question, you can never go back and put a little more or change it around a little bit. Or even I have found sometimes that the questions down the road ask it in a better way to be answered than I answered it in a question previously. Mm. So it's it's so you can make changes. I have loved it, and it's made me do, not made me, but it's it has, I want to do it now mm. because I can see it happening. 
I think the thing that's going to be the trickiest for me, and Justin said he would help me with this, is putting pictures with it, because I'm not very computer literate <laughs> that and was computer be, smart. That was actually going to be my next question. Tell me how computer literate you are. Oh, not. <laughs> not. <laughs> but the process of the interview process has been pretty it's simple. easy. Very easy. Hmm. Very easy. I just hook on to the link, and it pops up, and then I just go through to the question where I'm at. I'm now to the point where... Where we're married and I'm starting to have kids. Wow. So, so, so far, what has been the most thought-provoking question that was on there that made you go, hmm, that's really something that I maybe haven't thought about for a long time, but it's really bringing things back? Well, they ask questions about your friends. Your friends mm. when you were a child and your friends in high school and, and your friends into your adult life. And... Um, that's made me go back and think about some of my childhood friends that I haven't really thought a whole lot about, hmm. and yet what an important role they've played in my life. In fact, one of my high school friends was actually the one that kind of got my husband and I together, Justin's dad and I together. And so, huh. and I'd kind of, you know, I, rem I remember that, but I don't think about it much. But Right. And that was a fun thing to go back mm -hmm. on and reflect on. Yes. Very cool. Well, I'm really excited to see the end result and and be able to see that. And I'm really, every time I talk to you and you share a little bit about me, it gets me real excited and, and really makes me see the value of this partnership we have with A Life Untold. And uh, and uh, I'm just excited to see it and excited to see the, the excitement in your eyes it, about it, too. It is. It has been a very, very, very good thing for me. And uh, I think, because... Your dad, mm -hmm. Bob's been around, and he's kind of looked at some of the stuff mm -hmm. I've been writing. So I'm hoping that after I get done with mine, he'll maybe do his, yeah. and then you'll have both mom and dad's. That would be really cool. But, yeah. Well, very good. So there you have it. Uh, First-hand testimonial of the process of A Life Untold. And as she finishes up, we'll do this again when it gets finished up to do a reflection on it. But... Uh, Go check it out, alifeuntold.com. Make sure you use promo code Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N, at checkout, and you'll save 10% on it. All right, now I think we're ready to get on to the conversation I had with Kelly Erian Smith. She's a person that I worked with several years ago who is young. I think she's in her late 20s, 27, 28 years old, but she has some really meaningful life experiences that I gained a ton from during this conversation. As the goal and the tagline of the Journey Through Life podcast indicates, these are ordinary people with extraordinary stories. If you met Kelly on the street, you would think that she was a regular person who um, has a very put-together life, who has all the blessings and comforts of the world, but as you get to know her, you will find out that as all of us, she has had experiences that have brought her to where she is today. And she will continue to have experiences throughout her life that will continue to help her learn and grow and become the person that she can be. One thing that I have heard recently is that if I look into the eyes of anyone, anyone that I'm interacting with on the streets, in the stores, at home, if I treat them as if they are going through one of the most difficult trials that could happen, many times I would be correct in that treatment of them. 
Nearly everyone is going through some difficult things in their lives, and if they aren't currently, they have or they will. So treating somebody with a little bit of grace, with a little bit of understanding and kindness, can go a long ways. I know that you will enjoy this conversation and get a lot out of it. Sit back and enjoy this meaningful journey through life with Kelly Arian Smith. So Kelly, it's so awesome to sit down with you. It's been a long time since you and I have talked really, and, uh, and I'm grateful to be able to sit down with you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, what you, where you came from. Tell me a little bit about your, your earliest memories in life that are meaningful. So I was born and raised in Gilbert, Arizona. I've spent my entire life here with the exception of a few years that I lived in Los Angeles with my husband. But um, my entire childhood was in a very small town, which it still is considered a town. It's growing pretty rapidly now, but Mm -hmm. it was a very small community. I've lived in the same neighborhood or my parents have lived in the same neighborhood for 20 plus years. So you get to know the community very well. You know your neighbors very well, and they sort of become an extension of your family. Um, I'm the oldest of four kids, Hmm. and my parents, who are still madly in love, have been married for 28 years now. Hmm. They've been together for over 30. Hmm. And they moved out here immediately after they got married. They had me two years later. And um, so I have a younger brother, two younger sisters, and we all over the years had moved away. We've all come back now to be a family again. But I, I tell people I had sort of the idealistic childhood that you know everyone gets jealous of when they, when they hear the details of it because I was raised in a family that was very much in love with each other, very much friends with each other. We loved hanging out. We loved spending time as a family. All of my siblings and I, we talk about how we individually have very strong connections with each other and they all look different. My relationship with my brother looks very different from my relationship with my younger sister versus with the middle sister. All of our relationships are very dynamic, very different. Um, But when we're all together, that's when we're, we say like with our powers combined, (laughs) the four of us are together, we're a very solid unit. And so my childhood was just very happy. We had summers off because both of my my parents were, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a teacher later, but, you know, he had some days off in the summer and it was just so much fun spending all of our time together. We shared rooms and, um, you know, I really didn't know until I was much older that we actually grew up with very little money. I had no idea because, you know, we lived in a house that was so full of love. Mm. It it didn't matter and it, it didn't change how we interacted with each other. And so we had hand-me-down clothes and we ate a lot of the same foods over and over again. And, you know, but we didn't have the nicest backyard or the nicest bedrooms or the nicest house in the nicest neighborhood, but it was so full of love that it didn't really matter. Huh. Well, that sounds really, like you said, idealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the maybe things you did in the summers when you all had time off together that, that are very memorable for you? 
Oh man, we would play kick the can in the neighborhood with mm-hmm. all the neighborhood kids. That was a mm-hmm. fun one. And we did a lot of what we call seek and go hide. Oh, it's, it's the reverse of hide and go seek, but we play that a lot. Um, and we played night games in my neighborhood cause we lived in a cul-de-sac and all mm-hmm. the families were very close. They all had kids around the same age. So we would play night games every night over the summer. And it was usually we'd swim at somebody's house, eat dinner all together in somebody's living room, somebody's dining room. And then we'd go out front and play kick the can, hide and go seek, whatever. Mm -hmm. The difference was my parents always played with us. Mm. So all the kids would get around and, you know, decide what if it was going to be six flags up or whatever. But my parents always played with us. That was the difference. Did your neighbor's kid parents parents play with them also? The kid, the other parents or? Not to the same extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure they did in their own house, but when it came to all the kids playing together, my parents were the fun ones who they weren't like, oh, we'll play with you kids and being like forcing themselves into our our games. But they were the fun parents that they were like, oh, are your mom and dad going to come join us? And they would totally get into it. So like one of my favorite memories is during hide and go seek, my dad hid in the garbage can, (laughs) like the street garbage can. Right, right. Because he knew it would take us forever to find (laughs) him. Or like my mom would climb somebody's tree in their backyard. So we'd never, you know, we had like, just whose parents do that? Right. And they were so fun. And, but night swimming was a big one. Hmm. There were constantly people in our pool just Hmm. because we had a fun backyard. My parents were always open to having kids over. So night swimming was a lot of fun. We did that quite a bit. Well, very fun. So most of those memories centered right around that, your own home and your own neighborhood. There wasn't like, well, there may have been vacations. Were there any vacations also that you guys took or was it mostly just, Hey, let's hang out as a family in a community. It was mostly just spending time as a family while we all had the time off from the summer or for school, but we did do a family vacation. It was supposed to be every summer. My dad's side of the family is all on the East Coast. They're spread across several states on the East Coast. So we would try and make the trek out there, but being that we're in Arizona, everybody else meets up for a family vacation in North Carolina. Hmm. It's a really far trek to make with four young kids. Yeah. Um, and we're all just two years apart, all of my siblings, mm. almost exactly two years. So it's a lot to try and travel with kids that are that young and it's very expensive. And like I said, we didn't have a whole lot of money growing up. So there were years that we skipped and we'd go maybe every three or four, mm-hmm. but otherwise we didn't really go on any vacations until later when we were in our teenage years and we'd go if there was a soccer tournament or a volleyball tournament or a lacrosse tournament and one of us had to go anyways we would turn that into a family vacation Mm -hmm. most of the time it was just to california or different parts Mm -hmm. of arizona but otherwise everything was pretty much centered around our home as a child as a youth did you participate yourself in some of those sporting activities or I did. I played volleyball. Mm-hmm. I was terrible at soccer when I was younger. All my siblings got really good at soccer. I was just horrible. I played one year and realized I needed to give up. <laughs> so I played volleyball from junior high through high school, and I played on a couple of different club teams. 
I also played lacrosse for several years. Awesome. And um, my other siblings were primarily involved in soccer. One of my sisters played lacrosse. So it allowed us to travel a bit for them more so than me. Mm-hmm. But um, I, when I was much younger, I did gymnastics for a long time. Mm. From the time I was three until my teenage years, I was involved in gymnastics. So why why did you go from gymnastics to volleyball and lacrosse? Actually, it was the price. Mm. I was at the age where I would have started competing, mm. and that can get very expensive. Yes. So we just switched to, okay, I do want to still be active, but this is not working out for us long-term financially. So what else is out there? Mm -hmm. And I was a tall, lean teenager. Right. And so volleyball (laughs) just sort of happened naturally because I had a neighbor who was a volleyball coach and recommended that I give it a try. And I actually really enjoyed it. So that's when that started. I think I was in sixth grade going into seventh grade and I found out about it. And it just sort of stuck. And then lacrosse, that's a little bit more tenacious, more physical. Oh, it so, is. So tell me it's about getting into that. more aggressive. So when I decided to stop playing volleyball, I had played club for, a, uh, at that point, I had been playing volleyball for about five years. And I decided I didn't want to play for the school anymore. It was very competitive. And the summer trainings were very intense every morning, 5 a.m. throughout the entire summer. And I just felt like I had spent so much time in that. I wanted some time to myself to feel like a kid over summer vacation. Mm -hmm. So um, a few of my friends had been playing lacrosse through the school's team. And it, it was actually more of a club team. It wasn't affiliated with the high school. Okay. And I thought, well, that will be fun. And I have an aggressive side to me. So I thought <laughs> this could be an easy transition. And I was training so much with volleyball that I knew I could switch over and be really fast. Because one of the things that we used to do for training in volleyball is run the mile. Hmm. And we do a lot of weightlifting. We do a lot of plyometrics. We did a lot of band work. So I just knew physically I could transition to lacrosse and hold my own. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing about me. If I'm going to do something, I need to be good at it. Mm. I'm not competitive with other people. I'm very competitive with myself. Okay. So I'm not good at not being good right away. So tell me a time in your life when you started something and you realized, you know what, I'm not, you talked about soccer. Let's do something. <laughs> you realized, hey, I'm not super good at this. So either you gave up right away or maybe you pushed through it and you came through the other side of it. Well, soccer would be the example of I gave up right away. Mm -hmm. And what's funny enough is I was in, gosh, fourth grade Mm -hmm. when I tried soccer. So that's what, nine years old, 10 years Mm -hmm. old. And I gave up after one season And still to this day, when it gets brought up, I get a little pit in my stomach because it was just, I have very distinct memories of running across the field to try and kick the ball and missing or, you know, just getting schooled by a girl when I was trying to play defense. And it, it, it still sticks with me. Hmm. So 
that would be an example of a time that I gave up and I wish I hadn't because I never got the chance to make a memory of me being successful at it. Mm. It still kind of irks me. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, I've done a lot education wise after high school, I went on and got my bachelor's degree in psychology and I worked very hard at the school that I was at. I graduated from the honors program and, you know, made sure I had a very high GPA I did an honors thesis that was geared towards what I wanted to pursue in graduate school. And then I went on to graduate school and was very competitive with myself as far as grades and, you know, performance on um, what we would call our practicals. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I I went to school to be an occupational therapist, so it's very hands-on. And so I think there have been many moments throughout my education where I felt like I wasn't doing as best as I could. But with something like education, that was an example of when I was not just going to quit and drop out. There were certainly moments that I wanted to, especially in grad school, because my master's program, the anatomy course was no joke. Mm. But it was just too big of an investment and too important to my future to give up. So that would be more of an example of a time that things got really challenging. And I wasn't the best student anymore. I wasn't the highest grade. I wasn't the first person done with the practical. You know, I didn't have the best dissection in anatomy Mm -hmm. and that needed to be okay because I was doing the best that I could. Yeah. And I was still learning. Do you think that that pushing through that has been helpful in other areas or will be helpful in other areas of your life? I mean, one, one thing you said there was, you know, I wasn't the best at dissection. I wasn't the best at this. I was no longer the best student with the highest GPA. I was no longer, and you didn't say this, but I'm going to assume this. I was no longer the smartest kid in class, you know? Right. That for a lot of people can be a rude awakening, especially if they've skated through life, not wanting to say that, you know, life is easy for you, but you have, you've had, uh, you've been very blessed and very able to accomplish a lot of things in your life. So that, awakening can be kind of rude for others. So how do you think that can help you as you press forward through life? I learned through those instances of, okay, giving up is not an option. So what am I going to do here? I have learned to be graceful with myself and to allow myself time to to get used to things. Not to say that I'm able to do that all the time. I'm in a fairly new position right now at, at my work. And I'm still having to continuously remind myself to be patient and to give myself time to learn things, to understand that anyone who comes in new will need help at times. Mm-hmm. It's okay if I make mistakes. You know, I try and not be as hard on myself. But I think all of those times that I was no longer the star student, I was no longer the first, the best, the, you know, it, it has taught me that that's okay because I'm doing my best Hmm. and that's all that I can ever do. Is that something maybe your parents instilled into you? You do your best. You don't sell yourself short and you push through whether or not you are the best, you do your best. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That has been something that they have ingrained in us from the time that we were very little. They were always very encouraging. Positive affirmation just came very easy to them which was wonderful and very supportive. But 
I think a lot of my, I have a long history of needing to work on my self-confidence overall. Mm -hmm. And I think having these challenges where I'm pushed outside of my comfort zone and I have to sort of show up for myself has really, really helped me develop more self-confidence so that when things happen and I make mistakes, I can be a little bit more, um, I can be more gentle with mm-hmm. myself and say, okay, that's all right. I'll learn from this. We'll move on. Now you just said something and I want to come back to it because I, I, I want to make sure I understand it. You said something like when I need to show up for myself, mm-hmm. what does that mean? <sighs> well, I've experienced some things growing up that despite the support and the structure that I had at home, despite how happy my family was, I didn't have a good sense of, like I had mentioned, being confident in myself. Hmm. Self-esteem was not, you know, it's interesting because my siblings and I, we would work so hard in school, whether it was elementary school or college, We would work so hard to do our best, to get good grades, to be the example of a perfect student. And that was all well and fine. But any time other people gave us, you know, positive affirmations or compliments or anything, we were very good. All of us do this. We're very good at deflecting. Hmm. You know, when someone gives you a compliment, and you instinctively insult yourself in response. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Um, know they'll that. say, "Oh, you look nice today," and it's like, "Well, that's a change for once," because usually I look horrible. Yeah, yeah. And then you think about it, and you're like, "I went out of my way to insult myself just to there, myself and down. now I feel bad. Why did I do that?" That's something we're a little too good at, and I grew up doing that a lot, which really only hurt me in the long run. Hmm. So. For a long time, I did not show up for myself. I did not stand up for myself in certain situations that I wish that I had, Um, you know, different relationships, whether they were, uh, you know, dating relationships or friendships that I nurtured for several years that looking back, you know, those weren't really healthy for me Hmm. or, you know, that didn't really set a good precedent for how I want to be treated by others. And then realizing, well, it's probably because how I treat myself is sort of what sets the foundation for what you allow to happen Hmm. from other people. And I just, I wasn't always good about showing up for myself. And I've made a very conscious effort recently as I've gone, I've I've recently sought out um, some mental health. Hmm. And so I go to psychotherapy with a therapist that I've been working with. And it has been wonderful for me to sort of unlearn those negative thoughts and behaviors. So, so I want to dig a little bit into maybe some relation, a relationship that mm-hmm. you've had in the past. You mentioned that there were some friendships you cultivated, maybe some dating relationships that you, that you cultivated that probably weren't the most healthy for you. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to share one of those? You don't have to share a name or anything, but you know, one of those that was really maybe had a negative influence on your uh, self-esteem, as you mentioned, that you are really trying to undo right now through this process? 
Well, without getting too deep or too graphic, I would say. Okay. One of the main things that I have been working on in my therapy sessions is getting over, so to speak, a relationship that I had when I was very young. I think it started when I was 14 mm-hmm. and lasted until I was just turned 17. Mm. So it was a good amount of my teenage years. Yeah. A very impressionable, formidable teenage years. And, um, you know, I, I grew up with a lot of very close friends in elementary school. And then when I went to junior high and high school, we went to different schools, people moved away, friend groups changed. And I struggled to find my place. And because of that, I think I latched on to different groups of people that I otherwise wouldn't have simply out of necessity of wanting to belong. Mm. And, um, one of those relationships was with a guy that I mentioned I dated from 14 to 17, Mm -hmm. that it was a very unhealthy relationship. He was from a very unstable family and it took me a long time to really see it in black and white at face value. Because when you're in that relationship and you have this person that you've put so much into because simply because I just, I needed to have somebody. Mm -hmm. It was too lonely to just be me. Mm -hmm. And that would have been better for me in the long run. But I, at that time, my self-esteem, it, I just, I was the typical teenager who just felt like they needed to belong. Somebody came around that was nice to me. Okay, we'll give it a shot. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about relationships. I have no experience with dating. I'm the oldest of four, so my parents have no idea how to navigate this new world. Right. I don't know what normal is for a kid my age, but I am a kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not like I had close girlfriends to say, so this is what's going on. Is this normal? Is this what you guys do? Is this how you spend your time? And I just sort of interpreted a lot of things that happened in that relationship as normal because I didn't know otherwise. And then as I got older, um, and the, the relationship ended in a very bad way. And as I got older and started talking about it more, I realized just how bad it was. It was a very physically, verbally, emotionally, and sexually abusive relationship. Mm. And I had no idea. Right. Because this was my first relationship. It was the first guy that was nice to me who wasn't going to, I thought, you know, make a fool out of me or make me feel worse than I could make myself feel. And I just threw myself into it, spent all my time with him. And the longer you do that, the easier it is to learn all my weak points and use them as strategies to, you know, get inside my head. Do you think that your experience there is fairly unique or do you think that more people go through similar experiences to that? Not exactly the same, but similar than what people admit to. You know, it's sad because when I first started, I sought out mental health services for very unrelated reasons to that. And 
ironically enough, this is what we talked about before we talked about the reason I actually went to therapy mm-hmm. because it just kept coming up to where my therapist was like, well, let's open this a little bit more. Yeah. And then just in a strange turn of events, I had some things happen in my personal life that just sort of blew the lid off of it. And suddenly all of these things that I had pushed deep, dark down into my subconscious came flooding out Mm. and I was forced to deal with them. And I realized, you know, I had just bottled things up for 11 years and I guess it was because I just wasn't ready to deal with them until now. But when I first started bringing them to the forefront of my brain and really working on them, I was consumed by, I mean, I couldn't go 30 seconds or a minute without thinking about it and feeling sick all over again. It, I was, I was consumed by it. And the problem with that is something this intimate and something this shocking is not really good, small chat, you know, conversation. And Mm -hmm. when you start to talk about it, a lot of people get really squirmy and uncomfortable Mm-hmm. And so I tried my best to just keep it to myself, only tell the people that needed to know, which at the time were my husband and my therapist. And it was affecting my mood. It was affecting how I interacted with my family. It was affecting how I was able to handle myself at work. And finally, it got to the point where I felt like trying to keep my deep, dark secret I just wanted to scream it at everyone, Mm. you know, people in the grocery store that I don't know, people walking by on the street. I just felt like yelling it at everyone and I just couldn't keep it to myself anymore. So I sat with my sister in my parents' driveway at three in the morning and just filled her in. And that was sort of where it started for me. That, that broke the gates open. I got it off my chest. I said it out loud in the world. I used the names. I used the words. I just let it all out. And it was such a relief that I thought, man, if this feels this good to say at one time, I just need to, if I'm really going to undo all of these negative thoughts, all of these horrible learned behaviors, all of my self-doubt, every negative thought I've had mm-hmm. about myself, every piece of ownership that I have taken over this situation and what has happened. Mm-hmm. If talking about it once can be this helpful, I'm not going to hold it back anymore. And I slowly started being very deliberate with who I shared it with. Mm. And the more I did, the more I learned a lot of the women in my life have a different version of the same story. Yeah. A lot of the women in my life have a different version of the same story too. And it's very sad that there's this taboo. I don't know what it is, but no one wants to talk about it. And it's horrible because it's just, nobody knows how to handle it. Nobody knows how to talk safely about it. No one's comfortable with it. But why does that mean we have to stay quiet about it? You know, it just takes all the power from me, which is why I was in that position in the first place. So if me talking about it is going to make one more person feel like, okay, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. It wasn't me. It was the situation and the person I was with, you know, it, it, has been very powerful and very healing. Yeah. So I'm assuming that um, as, because you shared that a lot of the women in your life have had similar, similar situations. I'm assuming that as you've talked to some people, 
they've said, thank you so much for sharing that. Can I share my own experience with you? Yes. This has led to a lot of hour long conversations when, you know, we plan to go to lunch for a quick 45 minutes and it ends up being, we're here until they close, you know, or conversations that start over text and then end up going, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to drive to your house because this is too big. Or friends that I haven't even spoken to in years reaching out and saying, just so you know, I'm in it with you. Hmm. And, you know, I'll ask them, I'm here if you want to talk. Do you need somebody as a soundboard? Do you want somebody that can be a vault for you? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say, no, it's just nice knowing that I have somebody I can go to if I need to. Just know that you're not alone and that's good enough for me. But So have you created your own little support group by sharing with people or do you all attend or participate in any um, official or or semi-organized support groups? I have sort of created my own support group. I'm very, very blunt, very open and honest on my personal Instagram page. Okay. And I joke with my siblings because they're like, I don't know why you put stuff like that on there. It's way too much personal information. Nobody needs to know that much. And I'm like, you know what? If people don't want to see it, they won't follow me. And I joke and say, it's my shameless public diary Mm. because I tried journaling. I tried going on long walks. I tried screaming it to myself in my car. And what I found really helps is just putting it out into the world. Because usually what I get back is one, either support, very Mm -hmm. positive, comforting, loving support, or two, other women reaching out saying, thank you for sharing this. Now I feel like I can share mine. Hmm. So why does it need to stay in my journal to make other people feel comfortable? That's not my job. Nobody made me feel comfortable. Hmm. No, that's really interesting. Now, I'm I'm loving this conversation so far. This is really cool. I'm learning a lot about you that I didn't know. And honestly, you and I don't know each other very well. We worked together a little bit, but right. we, don't know, we don't know too much about each other. But um, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you was the situation that happened in your family in the last couple of years that uh, I'm assuming that might be what the reason you went to mental health for in the first place is something related to that. Is that true? Yes, that is very true. Okay. Why don't you give us a little, what that, what, what happened and (laughs) talk about your life, what it's looked like the last couple of years. Oh boy. So my mom is a marathon runner and she was also a boot camp trainer. She was 53 and in arguably the best shape of her life. Four kids later, at 53 years old, she had arguably an eight-pack and was smoking hot, no body fat, just Mm -hmm. a picture of health. She'd go out and run to the airport because she was training a marathon and training for a marathon and figured, I might as well see if I can. Like, she was crazy. Mm. And she was notorious for doing two workouts a day just because she had the time. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go, you know, back when I lived at, at my parents' house when I was in school, we'd be watching something on TV and I'd look over during the commercial break and she's either doing burpees or a plank or sit-ups or push-ups or tricep dips. You know, she was just obsessed with physical health. Mm. And so she was running 
um, her normal Tuesday, Thursday morning runs that they did every week. She and her running partner, Carrie, who was her BFF, they called each other their soul sisters, like mm. S-O-L-E as in like shoe. Yeah. I thought they were very clever. <laughs> and they would run together every Tuesday and Thursday. They were fast friends because they met through my youngest sister's soccer team. Mm. Their daughters both played together and they just instantly connected. And they were on their usual Thursday morning run. They were about a mile away from their cars and they were hit by a truck while running in the crosswalk. And it was about 5.30 in the morning, I think. So um, it was a little dusky and long story short, the logistics of the accident, my family and I still are not sure. Mm. And I don't think it would change anything for me to know what happened. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with not knowing. But the ramifications of the accident, um, Carrie was killed on impact. Mm. And she is also a mother and a wife. And um, but she was she was killed by the impact of the truck. And my mom suffered a brain injury, a very severe brain injury. She had a left temporal subdural hematoma which means a very deep bleed in her brain. Mm. And she also, because of the amount of blood that she lost at the scene, she had a stroke. Mm. And that was also a very severe stroke because the area of her brain that it was in, it was in the bilateral motor tracts, which means that affects how she's able to move. She shattered her pelvis broke both of her legs. Her right leg was a compound fracture, meaning the bone was sticking Mm -hmm. out of it. So that was set with an internal rod. She shattered every bone in her face, broke one of her arms. We're not sure which one because it was too low on the priority list to really talk to us about. She had a lot of internal internal damage. So she bruised her lungs, tore a hole in her diaphragm, ruptured her spleen, And gosh, there was something else. She had a bleed in her spinal cord. She fractured her C2 vertebrae. Let's see. Did I cover everything? Who knows? And she was covered in road rash. It was a very, very, very severe accident. And she was lucky to just live through it, honestly. Mm -hmm. But 12 days after the accident, when she was recovering in a trauma ICU, I mean, she was air back to the hospital. It was, mm-hmm. it was bad. Um, my brother flew home from Denver. My sister drove home from Flagstaff. I flew home from Los Angeles and we lived in the trauma ICU waiting room at that hospital for 19 days total. Mm. But after 12 days of her fighting for her life, literally every day was a different surgery. Every day was a different surgeon telling us what her odds were. Initially, they told us she wouldn't make it through the first night, Hmm. and then it sort of extended to, well, she probably won't make it past 48 hours. Now, she probably won't make it past 72. Hmm. After 12 days, the doctor, her neurosurgeon, sat down with me, my dad, my brother, and my aunt and said, realistically, here's what you're looking at. With the level of her brain injury, she is going to be in a coma for a very long time. She probably won't ever wake up. Mm. Now is the time where you have to make a tough decision as a family to either keep her 
hooked up to all of these machines, hope for the best, see what happens, or withdraw care hmm. and let her die. And it was all such a whirlwind. I didn't even know who I was as a person. I hadn't showered. I mean, we were showering in the sink in the bathroom. I don't remember eating. I don't remember a lot of it from that time. Hmm. But 12 days after your entire world has ended, that's not enough time to really understand the magnitude of what you're being asked to do. Hmm. And I mean, how do you make a decision like that yeah. as a child? I was 24, but I'm their child. That's right. my mother. How do you make a decision like that? And we just sort of stared at each other in awe because, you know, you have these moments that it's like no matter where you are, no matter how much time has passed, you can go back to them in a second. Mm -hmm. You can smell the room, hear all the sounds, and you remember what everyone was wearing and where everyone was sitting. You remember what's being said. It's like you're living it all over again. This is one of those moments for me, Erin, in her hospital room at the edge of her bed. And so the doctor was looking at us like, what do you want to do? It's been 12 days. We don't really have high hopes for her but it's your family. So ultimately it's your choice. He said, do you know what she would want? Mm. And I flash back to just two weeks prior when I had driven out in the middle of the night with my husband to surprise my family mm. to visit them. And I was walking home from a workout with my mom. The boot camp was just a couple of miles from our house. We were walking home and my mom was filling me in on all the drama around my grandma's upcoming knee surgery that she was supposed to have because my grandma is older and my mom was saying she's just driving us nuts because she will not talk about what happens if something goes wrong. She will mm. not tell us what she wants us to do in the case that something happens and she doesn't wake up. And I looked at her like, and you're so much easier to talk to about <laughs> topics like this. You don't talk about death. You don't talk about the bad stuff. So I looked at her and I said, well, what would you want? And she was like, what? What would you want if something happened to you and we had to make a decision like that? What would you want us to do? And she said, if something happens to me and there is no chance of me recovering, then I want you to donate all of my organs, every part of me, cremate me, and I want you and your siblings to find a way to spread my ashes into different pieces of jewelry, hmm. and I want you all to wear me every day so that I can be close to you. If there is no, ch uh, or if there is a chance that I can work and come back from it, you give me that chance. Hmm. You know how strong I am you give me that chance because I will fight to come back to you. And so I'm sitting at the edge of her hospital bed and she's got a ventilator breathing for her. She's got her entire skull wrapped up because it was just a portion of it was just removed to relieve mm -hmm. the swelling and the pressure. She's completely bandaged up because she just had a rod. And this was a big external rod put through her entire leg. Mm -hmm. Her abdomen was so swollen. They couldn't even close her after they went in. So she was just packed with this big abdominal binder around her. Mm. And there was about a three inch space of her skin. That was all that we were allowed to touch. 
because otherwise she was too swollen, too scraped up. There were surgical sites everywhere, incisions, IV lines. We, we weren't allowed to touch anything. So that one little patch of skin. Um, but that's my mom now. She's so swollen and bloated that I don't even recognize her. Mm. And this soon into her accident, we're supposed to make a decision of whether she lives or dies. But that, that memory, that walk that I had with her, my family and I talked about it and we thought, well, this is, it's not a no brainer because, you know, she has brain damage. She's in a coma. We don't know what the future would look like, but we decided we want to keep her alive. We want to give her every chance that we can so mm. that she can come back to us. Mm. So we spent 11 months, long story short, we spent 11 months in several different facilities, whether they were hospitals, long-term care facilities, skilled nursing facilities, rehab facilities. She finally came home. Uh, her accident was April of 2017. Mm. She finally came home March of 2018. Wow. Almost so we just celebrated a year of her being home a few months ago. Mm-hmm. We just celebrated this past April, a two month or excuse me, a two year mark of her accident. And she's still recovering every day. But her being home means that my siblings and I have pretty much abandoned what our lives used to include to care for her 24 seven. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I'm an occupational therapist. I work only a few days a week, um, but I'm with my mom seven days a week. Mm-hmm. My brother works as a physical therapy tech. He starts his PT program for a doctorate program of physical mm-hmm. therapy this August. And he's with my mom seven days a week. My sister is a speech language pathology assistant Wow! in the in-between time before she goes to grad school to be mm-hmm. a speech language pathologist. She's with my mom seven days a week. Wow. My dad is a high school science teacher. He is with her seven days a week. Yeah. And my youngest sister is currently in her undergraduate for psychology. Mm-hmm. So she is in Flagstaff for most of the year, but she comes down every weekend that she's able to. And this was just sort of coincidental that we're all in the field of therapy and psychology because my mom worked in that field for a long time doing early intervention and providing services to children with developmental disabilities. So it's worked out very well for us because we're able to care for her very well, but she does need 24 seven care. Now that Mm. she's home, she's started to develop more speech, but it's hard to understand Mm -hmm. cognitively. She understands what we're able to say to her, but we don't really know if she understands her situation. Mm. She knows that she was in an accident. Sometimes she knows more clearly than others. Mm. And every once in a while, she'll surprise the hell out of us and reenact the accident for us. Really? So it shocks us when she does, but... So let's dig there. How does she reenact that? What does she do? She acts like she's running. Mm-hmm. And then she, she, it's all body movements mm. because this has been happening since before she had any speech. Mm. Um, it took, if I would say eh, conservatively, probably seven or eight months for her to be awake from her coma okay. because you can wake up from a coma and it's not like, 
what happens in the movies. Right. They can have their eyes open and not really be all there. You don't wake up from a coma and go, whoa, that was crazy. What have I missed? Right. Is it? You know? So um, it's taken her a long time to develop. So speech has only been recent and she has been reenacting her interpretation of the accident for probably a year now is mm. safe to say. And the first time we saw it, we thought, well, there's no way that this is what she's doing because she doesn't even have the cognitive wherewithal to understand that she was in an accident. Mm-hmm. But oh no. So she will pretend like she's running. She acts out physically the process of seeing a car and taking an impact from her left side. Mm. And then she she looks up at the ceiling and she does this motion with her hands of like she's flying in the air. And then she closes her eyes and like suddenly jolts like she's crashing onto the ground. And then she'll say something like, and I almost died. Wow. Or, and then I woke up. Hmm. Something to that extent. And um, rarely, but sometimes she asks about Carrie. Mm-hmm. And usually we just say something along the lines of, yep, Carrie knows that you were in an accident. Hmm. She knows. So she, so your mom's still maybe not cognitively uh, able to understand, but she doesn't know what happened to Carrie. She doesn't know. I don't think cognitively she would understand right now. Mm -hmm. And she's also, because of the brain injury itself, her emotions are pretty, they fluctuate a lot Mm -hmm. and very quickly. So she can go from being very happy to very sad or very happy to very angry or just sort of neutral to very confused mm. at the drop of a hat. Mm. And sometimes it's without anything happening. You know, we look over and she's smiling and then the next moment we look over and she is devastated, sobbing, mm. uncontrollably crying and we don't know how to help her. Yeah, man, that is so hard. So I'm really fighting myself right now, but this might be the worst question anybody has ever asked in the history of questions. Oh boy. If you had to make that decision again, knowing what you know now, how would you make that decision of keeping her or taking her off of medical care? Asking me that today, I'd do everything exactly as we did. Mm -hmm. If you had asked me that in August of 2017, Mm. I would have begged for a do-over. There was a moment when initially after the accident, they removed a portion of her skull to allow her brain to swell outside of the boundaries of the Mm -hmm. skull because otherwise it would just do more damage. And she went without having that part of her skull flap for, what is that, four months, April to August. Mm -hmm. So when her skull flap was put back on, her actual skull was too fractured and damaged. They had to use a synthetic flap. Hmm. made out of, I believe it's made out of titanium. And um, we had pretty high hopes for that because from hearing other people's stories who had undergone something similar, they recovered from that surgery and it was almost as if that sparked a big recovery for them. So we went into it thinking she's going to get her skull flap back and Hmm. we're going to see some major changes in progress. Hmm. Instead, what we saw was 24-7 seizure activity. Hmm. And 
no real change in alertness. Mm. And it was pretty devastating. It was a big hit for our family. And there was one afternoon that we were just desperate for the neurosurgeon to come in and give us some sort of good news. And I can't remember what question I asked him, but he tied it all back to, well, you remember when I spoke with you and your family and I told you the reality of the situation and what that would mean if you were to continue or what that would mean if you were to withdraw care, mm-hmm. you chose as a family to continue to let her live. And then he sort of gestured towards her bed as if to say, here's what you get. Wow. This is your mom now. Mm. She's going to passively lay in a bed unresponsive with no idea of who she is, who you are, the fact that she's a person Mm -hmm. and that will be her life now. Mm. And I sat in front of the hospital on a bench with my dad and without saying it, we both had the same thought of we made a very bad decision. Mm. We have just committed her to a life of living in a bed Mm. and we have committed ourselves to a mom who lives her life in a bed. Mm. And I would have done anything to go back and say, just kidding. I want to let her die Yeah. because this is worse. This is so much worse. Hmm. And there are still days if I really want to be honest with myself, there are still days where every single one of my family members will say, it's just a really freaking hard life that we've sort of grown into. Yeah. But She's here, you know, we have to be happy about that. But I I still certainly have moments where I'm like, what would be more challenging? Trying to convince my mom that I'm her oldest daughter or grieving her? Mm. Because in a sense, I still am grieving her. I don't have her like I used to. I have a bad day at work. I can't call her. I can't tell her. My husband and I want to start a family soon. I can't get excited with her. Instead, I have to realize that I care for her 24-7, so maybe we can't start a family now Mm. because maybe she's a limiting factor there. Maybe my time with her is so, so draining and so consuming that I don't get to have the life that I otherwise would have. And that can be really tough, but I just have to remind myself the good days are very good days because she gives amazing hugs. She Hmm. is still her happy self. She still tells us about 87 times a day that she loves us Hmm. and wants millions of kisses. Hmm. We are still a very happy family, but it's a new normal that looks very different. And Hmm. there are days where it's, it's just too much to handle. That's really tough. Now, now let's, let's pretend that you and I are walking down the street after a boot camp workout. And Mm -hmm. I turn to you and say, Hey Kelly, what would you want in this situation? Oh, my husband and I have had this conversation many a times and I've mentioned it to my dad. I haven't had this conversation with my siblings, but my husband knows damn well. If anything happens to me, he is to pull the plug. Hmm. If the situation is as grim as it is, I will not do this to my children. I will not do this to my husband. Not that my family is ungrateful and not that my mom has done this to us. Mm -hmm. That would be a wrong choice of words. But knowing what it looks like to make this decision and say, okay, we're going to do this 24-7. We don't have outside help. We don't have hired caregivers to come in. We 
We don't use nursing staff. It's us because we are a very protective family and we're all control freaks. So it Mm -hmm. is just us. Mm. Knowing what that looks like, how that has affected all of the decisions that we're allowed to make for our individual lives, I will not do that to my family. Mm. So my husband knows if this happens, it's exactly what my mom said for the slim chances of you donate all my organs, you give everything that you can, cremate me, keep me on you, remember me fondly. Yeah. Wow. So what, um, how has your perspective on life shifted over the last couple of years from this um, experience? You know, it's a lot of the cliche, live every day to its fullest, appreciate what you have. Have you ever had those moments where you have an interaction with somebody and something in you, this instinctual gut feeling is like, I need to tell them I love them. Mm. Or you get this overwhelming feeling of like, holy cow, I'm so proud of you. Mm. We act on those all the time. Did you used to act on those? Sometimes. With my family, yes, always. Because from the time I was little, I remember my dad would like give me a hug and then he'd squeeze my hand and go, you know how much I love you, right? And usually we would just chalk it up to, oh, that must be granddad coming through. That's mm-hmm. him talking through you to tell me that he loves me. Mm-hmm. Now, if it happens with friends, if it happens with somebody at work, if it happens with strangers, you know, when you pass by somebody in the grocery store and you're like, gosh, she looks so happy. Mm-hmm. I now am the weirdo that goes, you look so happy. Or your hair is just absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You look wonderful today. You know. I just, the very cliche, life is short. You have no idea what could happen. You could be a normal person. And then within the span of five minutes, you get a phone call and everything's changed. Yeah. You could, you could have something happen that changes you as a person to your core. Hmm. And you have no warning. The ground is just pulled out from under your feet. So I'm very deliberate with how I choose to spend my time. I'm very deliberate with the people I surround myself with. Mm-hmm. I try and focus on the happy and the positive, but I let myself feel the sad and the negative. Mm. I let myself go there. And I oftentimes let myself go there very publicly because chances are somebody else needs to see that it's okay. Yeah. So um, how, how has that allowing yourself to feel those two opposites, those two polar opposites, you know, the happy and the positive and the negative and the sad mm-hmm. um, and putting yourself in both places, how has that helped you? I don't know, maybe better appreciate the positive. I think being more transparent with myself about my emotions and being in touch with, it's like just living in the moment and I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's just, I don't feel like it's like earlier when I said, why is it my responsibility to make other people feel comfortable? Hmm. Why am I trying to subdue my own feelings? Is that supposed to make me feel better about the situation? The situation is what it is. It's horrible. It's terrible. No one would want this to have happen to happen to their family, but it did. Mm -hmm. So 
why bother pretending like everything is okay when it's not, Hmm. you know, it's, it has helped me appreciate the positive more because when the low can be this low, man, the highs feel really high, Hmm. you know, seeing my mom now and how much we have to help her hearing her cry when she holds our hands and says, I'm sorry, you have to wipe me. Hmm. And then having her turn around and recognize somebody that she hasn't seen in months or see my husband and give him a hug and then look at me and say, I love him. Mm. Or, you know, somebody starts talking about, Oh, we're, well, we want Kelly and Jimmy to have a baby soon. And she goes, Oh, please. You know, those highs of what her hugs feel like. And when she calls me honey, like Mm -hmm. she do, it's so powerful Hmm. And I think it just means more because I let myself feel the really low lows. Has gratitude fit in to your life over the last couple of years? And if so, how? Yes. And I don't really care about the trivial things anymore. You know, things that used to bother me or things that I used to spend my mental energy on. I'm like, who cares? Money? Hmm. Meh, it might never be there. Perfect timing? That doesn't exist. You know, gratitude for me looks like this summer, my family is wonderful enough to allow me some time off so that I can spend more time with my husband. Mm. So yesterday I was able to come straight home from work and watch TV with him on the couch, Mm. meaning I got to see what my living room looks like when there's sunlight and that I am unbelievably grateful for. You know, so it's those little things that I probably did very easily take for granted before that now I'm like, I can be home and make dinner with you. And it's during normal hours that people would consider for dinner, Hmm. you know, not at 10 PM, just because that's when I finally get home. I can have dinner with you at 6 PM. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Now, I have a couple more questions. How has this affected your relationship with your husband? I mean, it's got to be super hard. He is my rock. I tell him we are tried and true at this point. We did long distance through the midst of my mom's two-year recovery. We've had family pass away Hmm. that we were very close to. We've had (laughs) big realizations for me in all of my therapy sessions. And now, you know, all the skeletons are come out of the closet and through all of it, he has just been there. No questions asked. I mean, I can't, I can't even talk about him without getting emotional. He's, I'm very lucky. That's so amazing. Very lucky because this is the kind of stuff that could break families and could break relationships his entire career is in Los Angeles Mm. and he moved home without a second thought. His work has been wonderful and allowed him to have some flexibility in being here. But without question, it was like, well, what else am I going to do? You know? And Mm. for him, that's just because that's who he is, but I'm not ignorant enough to think that that's how everyone is. I know that I'm very, very fortunate. He has been my rock. And so the joke is that, you know, okay, what else are we going to be thrown at this point? We've pretty Hopefully much, not much, right? It all. So we're like, whatever else does happen, at least we know we can get through it together. Um, 
but he's also had to see a different side of me. I think a very angry, bitter, much more emotional, sad Mm. version of myself. And so he has had to learn, okay, when she's angry, what works and what doesn't. Mm. And when she's sad, what works and what doesn't. And at what times when I am just really feeling it, when do I not need a fix? You know, because he's, he's always like, how can I fix it? How can I make you feel better? Mm-hmm. And he's also gotten really good at understanding is tonight one of those nights where you need to just go there. Yep. Okay. Do you want me to be here? Nope. Okay. I'll do my thing. I'll hang out in the living room with our dog. You know, he's gotten really good. I feel like I have a partner that really sees me. That's really cool. I'm very, very fortunate for. Yeah. That's a huge blessing to have somebody in your life that, uh, that will ride that roller coaster with you through the ups and the downs, you know, mm-hmm. it's, that's, a, that's awesome that you and Jimmy have just made that happen. Cause like you mentioned, so many families who go through something somewhat similar to this shatter. Oh yeah. They can't, yeah. they can't do it. And, uh, I, that's awesome that you guys have, have uh, weathered this at this point. Where do you find hope in your life? Oh gosh. Stay tuned. <laughs> I don't know. I think I like to daydream a lot. I like to think about how things could be someday. I think I have to look forward to the future and hope that things will be positive. Otherwise, I couldn't get up every morning. Mm. Um, So I just have to keep hoping that my mom will continue to progress, that she'll be able to gain more independence, that, you know, slowly the four of us kids will be able to pull back more and have her take care of herself on her own so we can get back to our normal lives. I have very high hopes for a future family for Jimmy and I. I think that will be where I sort of feel like I've found my other role in life because I was ready to be a mom when I was six years old changing Mm. my sister's diaper. Mm. And so that's been really hard for me to put that off while I Mm. care for my mom. So looking forward to my future family, daydreaming about what house we'll live in, um, making plans towards working towards my dream career. Those are the things that give me hope. Mm. And seeing my mom progress slowly but surely, reflecting back on old videos of where she was and where she is now. It's just all... I'm trying to put good energy out into the universe, see what happens, but you have to be hopeful. Yeah. So that Uh, might be, that might be our closing thing, unless you have some other experience or words of wisdom that you'd like to, to get out there, you know, because hopefully this will be something, well, I know that this will help a lot of people. There are a lot of people that whether they've gone through the exact situation that you're going through or not, uh, people will go through similar things. And if they stumble across this, this will be a great uh, source of hope mm-hmm. and strength Hopefully. for them. Let's transport into the future 60 years from now. Mm-hmm. You've got great grandkids and they stumble across this and they go, hmm, wonder what great grandma Kelly said. <laughs> and they look at it. What do you want to tell them? You know, 
it's like I go back to the cliche things like don't sweat the small stuff and it's a lot easier said than done because I am still I'm still working on myself I'm still a work in progress which I think is a big lesson in and of itself it's okay to acknowledge when you're not okay mental health is not something to be taken lightly and this taboo uncomfortable bubble around it of ooh if you're going to therapy don't talk about it that means something's wrong with you Mm-hmm. please everybody could benefit from therapy but um you know being okay with the fact that i need help has been a big breakthrough for me because i just didn't have the skills that i needed and how could i i'm only seeing it from my perspective mm-hmm. so having that has been a huge help i think getting back to my roots of my family we've said over and over again Family is it for us. And for other people, it looks different. I know that not everyone has a family like mine. So for some people, it might be their work family or their group of friends that they consider family or their friend who their friend's family has developed or enveloped them as you know a member of their own. Whatever your support system, stay close. Use that as your safety net, use that as your security blanket. I mean, I don't know where I would be without my family and with my husband, but the other things in life, you know, you worry about money and what car you drive and what clothes you have and what people think of you and your titles and your symbols and none of it matters. None of it matters. Hmm. The only thing for me that matters is my family. Hmm. The only thing. And that is where I find myself. That's where I feel grounded. That's where I feel seen and understood and accepted. And that's where I choose to put my energy because really anything else would just be not, it it just wouldn't be a good use of my time Mm -hmm. or space. Yeah. Well, that's, thank you for sharing this stuff with me, Kelly. Mm-hmm. This has Absolutely. Been good. For me, I hope I hope you've gotten I hope you feel good about what you've what you Oh done. yeah, I love I love bragging about my family. I'll talk to anybody who will listen to me about my mom. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like and sounds like she's raised an amazing bunch of children, but an amazing daughter in yourself. Thank so you. I appreciate that's super that. Cool. All right. Well, thank you again, Kelly. This has been good. I've really enjoyed it, Kelly. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I'm really I'm really honored that you asked me to do this and that you thought of me as somebody who would be interesting enough to talk to talk to for an hour. Hopefully you get some good stuff out of it. I got good stuff out of it. And I think a lot of other people will get good stuff out of it too. Good. Good. Okay. I'm glad. Well, there you have it. All I can say is, wow, what an experience, what a series of experiences. I hope that you have some things to consider and think about and to talk about with your loved ones. I think her invitation to act right now when a thought comes to tell your family or a loved one that you love them or to approach somebody in a grocery store and tell them they look nice or they look happy or maybe that they look like they need a friend. I hope that we each take that invitation and act on it. I believe that it will make each of our lives that much better, as well as the lives of those around us. Now, once again, I'm really grateful for the support that you show the Journey Through Life podcast. And remember to go check out A Life Untold at 
alifeuntold.com. Use Justin at checkout to save 10%. And please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at JTL Podcast, both of them. Look up Journey Through Life Podcast. Uh, Look us up online, jtlpod.com, where you can catch all of our old um, conversations that we've had with many amazing and ordinary people, amazing and ordinary people with extraordinary stories. I'm for, I firmly believe that we are all extraordinary, ordinary people, that we all have a great purpose in this life, and that as we strive to experience and embrace the good and the bad and learn from the good and the bad, we will each become a little bit better person and make that circle around us just a little bit stronger and better. Thank you, and I look forward to getting another episode to you next week. Have a great one. Mm-hmm.